Psalm 9 as we continue talking about hope is rising. I want us to look this morning at hope in hard times. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out we are living in hard times. You can turn on the news for five minutes and come to the conclusion that we have absolutely lost our mind. Over a thousand people killed in Chicago this year and the year's not over yet. Gangs, hackers, men saying things that they ought to have soap put in their mouth for saying, politicians who lie and say whatever has to be said to get elected and lie to you when they tell you they're your friend. You know, it's kind of like the old line, I'm the government, I'm here to help. Run hard. If you didn't know any better, and if you aren't a person of faith, you will think that there is no hope. Or you will put your hope in the wrong thing or the wrong person. It seems at times that there is no place for hope in our world anymore. Today, hundreds of our brothers and sisters in Christ will be beheaded simply because they believe in Jesus. Children will be asked to stand and watch their parents be beheaded. Parents will watch their children be raped simply because they're Christians and we live in a evil world. If you're not careful, you'll give up. If you're not careful, you will begin to believe, whether you ever verbalize it or not, you will begin to believe that evil will win and our only hope is getting out of this world. But I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. I believe the Bible teaches that we are to give hope in a hopeless world because we have the only thing that does give hope to a hopeless world. One day the Bible does say that the books are going to be balanced and all accounts are going to be settled and that the devil does not have the last word. But the Bible is a book that tells us there is a battle going on between God and Satan, between good and evil, between wickedness and righteousness. And it seems on the surface that this is a tug of war and a match down to the finish where God is barely going to win in the end. That is not what the Bible teaches. This is not even close. Satan is on a chain and he can't do whatever he wants to do, but he is doing all he can do because he knows his end is in sight. Psalm 9, verse 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. 
You will lift you who lift up me up from the gates of death, that I may tell, verse 14 is a key verse, that I may tell of all your praises, that in the gates of the daughters of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made, in the net which they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands of the wicked is snared. Higeon Selah. Now this word is similar to the word Selah. It, it, it is a word for a solemn sound. A reminder to be solemn, to consider, to think through what is going on and what God has done and what God will do. Verse 17, the wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. If you live long enough and if you go through enough trials, somebody is going to ask you a question. How can you love God in light of what you've been through? How can, how can you say God is good in light of the world that we live in? If God is good, why doesn't he do this, 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 or this? And it's always the same argument from people who have never experienced the grace of God. Let, let me give you a, a thought here. What the world doesn't comprehend is that what we have been through actually deepens our trust in God. It doesn't weaken it. It deepens it. Because when you are in situations in your life when there's nowhere else to turn but God, you find out that God is sufficient in that moment and in that situation. Life is either going to make you hard or it's going to make you hopeful. Life is either going to make you bitter and angry or it's going to give you a platform from which you can say, God is good and God has great grace and great love and great mercy. God doesn't give hope. He is hope. He is hope. He's just not out there handing out hope on a street corner. God himself is our hope. That's what Jeremiah said. He, he said that God will give us a future and a hope. If, if you want hope, then what you want at the end is God, not just help, not just a fix, not just an answer, but you want God himself. Because whether the situation changes or not, God is always there. And he is always sufficient. I remember Ron Dunn's message on John chapter 9 was entitled, What Now? He said, most people ask the question, why? He said, the question is not why. Why was this man born blind? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? The question is, what now? In light of this, what do I do now? Why is that true? Because we do not live by explanations. We live by promises. We don't live by explanations. Listen, there are some things, if God explained it to you, you couldn't comprehend it. There, there are things that seem unfair and unkind and unjust, but at, at the end of the day, you don't know what God's big picture is. Now, in, in two weeks, 
on the 30th, we're going to look at hope in the midst of people suffering from deadly diseases. How does God give people hope when they've been diagnosed with a deadly disease? How does God strengthen people? And what is our hope to be when those kind of things happen in our lives and in our families or with our friends? You see, all of us have been in times where we've said to the Lord, see my affliction. The divorce, the prodigal child, the, the health, the finances, those who hate me, aging parents. And, and before we know it, words like affliction and adversity and anxiety become the key words in our lives. And when those become the key words in our lives, then we forget words like grace and hope and peace and trust and love. Verse 14, to tell of all God's praises and rejoice in your salvation. Now there are three things hope is not. First of all, it's not wishful thinking. It's not wishful thinking. Well, hope so. Hope so. Hope my team wins. Hope I get to that. Hope I get that lottery ticket. <laughs> hope I get this. Hope I get that. Hope I'm out of debt one minute before I die. Hope I can retire. Hope is not wishful thinking. Secondly, it's not yearning. It's not yearning. Man, I really hope this happens. That's not much different from wishful thinking. It's just more intense wishful thinking. I really, I really, really, really hope this happens. You know, wishful thinking and yearning was kind of like me growing up in a, in a lower income family and looking at the Sears catalog and circling all the things for Christmas and going, I want that and I want that and I want that. I really, really, really want that. I really, really, really want that. And my parents looking at me saying, are you out of your mind? We nor Santa Claus have that kind of money. <laughs> Plus, you've been such a sorry kid, you're not going to get anything. It's not putting, you know, $5,000 worth of stuff on your Amazon wish list. And maybe at the end of the year, you'll get a bonus and you go, cart, click, one click, buy it all. Shows up overnight. Yippee! That's great. That's wishful thinking and yearning. It's also not very practical. Hope is not, thirdly, a positive attitude. Because you can have a positive attitude and not have a positive attitude based on what God says. You just be a person that's basically just a positive person. I mean, you get up and go, hey, man, it's a great day, and not know anything about the promises of God. Hope is not a positive attitude because even if you are positive and optimistic, life can hit you hard enough that ultimately you lose that positive attitude. So what is it? Well, hope is two words in the Old Testament. One simply means waiting for what's ahead, and the other one means eager expectation. To the saints of old, hope always meant eager expectation for what God had ahead because of the promises of God. So let me give you a definition. It is an attitude of submission to God based on faith that God will keep his promises. 
It is an attitude of submission to God. Lord, here I am. I'm in this hard time, but I am submitted to you because I have faith in your promises. See, that's different than just wishful thinking. They hoped for deliverance from captivity. They hoped that they would get out of bondage. They hoped that a Messiah would come. All of that faith based on the promises of God gave them hope that these things would happen. One commentator defined hope this way. Hope is a gift of God through Christ that produces a confident, unshakable trust in his faithfulness and a vibrant expectation of his timely interventions in keeping with his gracious promises to us. So first thing, and we are farther along than you think I am, First thing is praise God for who he is, verse 1, 2, and 11. Verse 1, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Now, his circumstances, he shouldn't have acted that way, but he chose to do it. Verse 11, sing praises to the Lord. Declare among the peoples of his deeds. You see, the emphasis of this psalm is not on the problems, it's on praise. What the psalmist is trying to get us to do is in the midst of our problems, in the midst of hard times, to praise God. Four times he says, I will. Now, if the Bible says, and it does, that the heavens declare his glory, then we ought to be the choir leaders. Because we've been saved and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We ought to be leading the praise. He says, I will praise and hope have the same origin. Here's the difference. In prayer, I can get all focused on me. And me, 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 me. Many me. All about me. And then in my prayer with, and Lord, for all those other people that need you to touch them, you bless them today, amen. In praise, it's all about him. Unless you're an egomaniac, and then you just are praising yourself. But in prayer, it can get real focus on me. Lord, here's all my problems, here's all I'm going through. In praise, I know what the problems are, but I choose to praise God in the midst of my problems. I choose to praise God regardless of what I'm going through. I choose to believe God's word more than I believe the headlines in tomorrow's paper. That's what he's saying. So once you get your focus on God, verse 14, that I may tell all your praises that in the gates of the daughters of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. This goes back to what we talked about last week. Get your heart and your head focused on the times when God was so good and you were so aware of it. Go back and rehearse the victories. Go back and rehearse the answered prayers so that you can tell of his salvation. Here's a guy who's in trouble, but he says, I'm telling you what, I, you just give me one second. I'm going to tell of the salvation of God in the gates. I'm going to rejoice in God's salvation. Number two, the power of God, verses three through five. What he says in these verses is that God's got the final word. Four times he says, you have, you have maintained my just cause, which means, that word means, you have continued to support 
and sustain without hesitation. You've maintained me. You've never hesitated to maintain my just cause. You've never hesitated to stand in my defense. You've never hesitated to do what needed to be done. So, William Temple, the late Archbishop of Canterbury, said, For to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open up the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. By the way, if you, if you read this psalm, God calls sin, sin. He doesn't call it an accident. He doesn't cause it, call it a bent. He doesn't call it a uh, character flaw. He calls it sin. And he speaks to the redeemed. And he calls righteousness, righteousness. Now, here, here's what we tend to forget. Whatever you're going through, whatever you will go through, this, if you're a believer, this is the worst you will ever have. This is it. Man, my life's been terrible. If you're a believer, when you die, you're going to heaven. So no matter how terrible it is, you're not going to spend eternity in hell. This is the worst you're ever going to have. For the lost person, this is the best they're ever going to have. It goes downhill from here. So just think about your lost friends that say, man, I got it all. Man, I'm happy. I'm just, you know. And you look around sometimes at lost people and you go, man, you know, they seem to have it made. Well, you don't know how many credit cards they got. You don't know what their credit rating is. And you see their boat parked in the front yard. And they're always going to the lake. And they're going to Disney World. And they're going here and they're going there. And they're taking all these trips. You say, man, those lost people have got it made. Yeah, but they don't have a house on a street of gold. I do. And whatever it is, this is the worst I'll ever have. At the lowest point of life for the believer, what's ahead of you is better. Not just a little better, a whole lot better. But for your lost friends, no matter how happy they look, it is never going to get any better. And guess what? Statistics have proven one out of every one people die And I don't know if you've thought about this, but there are going to be people's names in the obituary tomorrow that weren't planning on their names being there. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. You delay on God, you may delay and find yourself like the rich man in hell who said, go tell my brothers they don't need to end up here. I can tell you this, every person that has died without Christ, if they could, would scream to the top of their lungs give your life to Jesus this place is really hell now, do we understand that because what God has done is gone to prepare a better place for us not just an improved version of this 
but a better place for us where there's no more tears and no more crying and no more sorrow, no more pain, and there will be no more death. That's what God has prepared for us. So whatever the battle that we are in, no whatever the hard time that we are in, we need to understand that the Lord abides forever. That's what he says in verse 7. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed and a stronghold in times of trouble. In other words, God's got your back. God's got your back. Look at the last thing, positioning ourselves before God. I want you to think about this. We need to position ourselves before God because we are surrounded by a fog of hopelessness. Most of us in this room, if we're paying attention, have lost all hope in objectivity in our country. Most of us have lost hope in the media most of us have lost hope in the government. Most of us have lost hope that retirement will be good. Almost all of us have lost hope that the lives of our kids will be better than our lives, which is part of the American dream. I mean, the American dream is in the toilet. Now, the greatest danger for us would be to say, since it's all going downhill, let's just all gather in church, sing Kumbaya, and pray for Jesus to come back so we don't have any more problems. And that is the very opposite of why God has left us here. God has left us here to be people of hope, to say to people that don't have any hope in the media, in journalists, in politicians, in the economy, in the future. There is hope. The hope is in Christ. Your hope is not tied to what your bank account looks like. Your hope is not tied to what your doctor's report looks like. Your hope is not tied to your possessions. Your hope is tied to Jesus Christ. Lloyd John Ogilvy said, hope is not something we have naturally. It cannot be humanly induced on demand. Even in our most soul-stretching situations, true hope is much more than the facsimile we try to conjure up in times of need. Now let me tell you something. If, if, if times are hopeless and if there is no hope, we should have never built anything we've built. If you buy that lie, then you're in the wrong church. Because every time any car drives by this property, it is a message to them. We are building for hope. We are building for hope. There's no need to have Legacy Park and have 75% of the people out there aren't even members of our church. No need to have that if there's no hope. Let's just let all those kids go to hell. There's no need to go plant churches and 
Long Island City and in Cleveland and in Baltimore and in New Orleans and in Burbank and in San Francisco. I mean, if there's no hope, why don't we just give the cities over to the devil by default and just let them all go to hell? I mean, if there's no hope, then tomorrow night at our 25th anniversary of the Crisis Pregnancy Center, let's just shut it down. If there's no hope, why will we open the doors at the Crisis Pregnancy Center tomorrow? Because there's hope. Why will we have recreation programs at Legacy Park? Because there's hope. Why do we do Kids Blast and Kids Rock? Because there's hope. Why do we do youth camps? Because there's hope. Because we have hope to offer people that don't think there's any hope. Are you hearing me? Why do we do all of this? Because we want to say to a world that thinks it's only going to get worse, it may get worse, but there's hope. No matter how hard the time, God is still on the throne. There's still hope as long as you have breath, as long as we have the opportunity to share our faith and to love people with the love of Jesus Christ. There is hope for us. Chiseled in the doorway of a parish church outside of London, England are these words. In the year 1653, when all things sacred were throughout the nation either demolished or profaned, Sir Robert Shirley Baronet founded this church, whose singular praise it is to have done the best things in the worst times and to have hoped them in the most calamitous. Folks, listen. Get your eyes up. Lift up your eyes to the hills from which comes our help. Now, I want you to look at that. One man, all it takes is one. One man founded a church in 1653, which is still standing. One man who said we, our singular purpose is to have done the best things in the worst times and to have hoped them in the most calamitous. In other words, he didn't walk around like Linus with his blanket having a pity party. He didn't walk around singing with Linda Ronstadt, poor, poor, pitiful me. He built a church. He put a marker up in a community to say, I don't know what everybody else is going to do, but I'm going to offer the best at the time that it's the worst. And I'm going to hope when it seems hopeless. I'm going to believe God that he has us here for a reason. Now, you either believe that or you don't. When you walk out of here in a few minutes, your Sunday school class better be talking about hope. You walk out of here and start having a pity party, 12 deacons are assigned to slap you silly. <laughs> 
Are we that? Is that our desire? That our singular, singular praise is to have done the best things in the worst times. Well, you just don't know how bad Albany is. You don't know how bad my life is. Hey, sure beats hell. And we live in a community where, according to studies, 88% of people in our region are lost and unchurched. They have no hope unless people like us give it to them. Right? Let it be said of Sherwood Baptist Church that we offered the best in the worst of times and that we had hope when the times were calamitous, that we were a beacon of light and peace and hope, that we had a passion for the gospel to make a difference in the lives of people. So here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you simply in this moment just to get on your knees. If you physically can, I want to ask you to just get on your knees. And I want to ask you to draw a circle around yourself. Just draw a circle around yourself right now. And would you just say to the Lord, God, make me a person of hope in a hopeless world. Give me words of hope to hopeless people. When the devil attacks me and tries to defeat me, help me to stand on the promises of Christ my King. Faith in the promises of God is essential in a time like this. If hope is going to rise, it has to rise in my own heart. And if it rises in my heart and in your heart, then it rises within the walls of this church and it spills out over this community and over this region. And before you know it, People are attracted to the gospel of Jesus Christ who feel hopeless today, but before this time next Sunday may feel hope because of us. Would you just ask God to fill you with hope to make your countenance, your actions, your reactions those of a person who knows that hope is on the horizon and that hope is found in Jesus Christ. God, we kneel before you today knowing that there is no hope apart from Jesus. We know that Jesus is the hope of the world, that the need of the world is Jesus, that the only answer for this world is Jesus. That nothing that is going on in this world right now, the greatest minds, the sharpest minds, the biggest agendas, none of that is going to fix what's wrong with this world. Only Jesus can fix and change what's wrong with this world. Lord, we know this world is sick. 
And it's moving toward a climactic conclusion when you're going to come back for your church. But Lord, you've left us here to tell people about you so that as many people as possible can know the hope of grace in Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that is found in Christ. Lord, there are people in this room going through difficult times. Give them hope. There are people in this room that are on the edge of despair. Lift up their eyes that they might see you. Lord, don't let us miss this season in the life of this church to say to this community, there is hope in Jesus. Let us not look at the buildings that we have built and the ministries that we provide as something for ourselves, but as witnesses to this community, here's a place called hope. God, would you do in us and through us what can only be done by people who are walking with their eyes on Jesus, not on their problems. For we pray it in Jesus' name. The people of God said, Amen.